So why are we in Romans? Been here for a few weeks now, and we got a couple years ahead of us based on the pace in which the lead pastor tends to go. Why? Well, he wants you to know God's word. Let me peel back the curtain for a moment for you, okay? Um, I've been privileged to, to serve with Brent for 22, 23 years, something like that. And in all that time, it's just been a few times where he said, what do you think about going with this book? Uh, I'm not sure if we should study this book next or if we should enter into this series. Why? Well, Brent takes his responsibility that the elders have delegated to him, right? All these guys who, who are great godly men, right? Denny, Scott, Justin, all right? All these guys, Corey's a new elder, Brent. They take the responsibility very seriously. And so when it comes time to what's going to happen next, and Brent's been tasked with and spends good time evaluating what does the flock of God need to hear? What do they need at this time? Sometimes it's a short series, as you know. Most often it's, okay, they just need God's word. So what are we going to be going through? Sometimes it's a short book. Sometimes it's like we finished up last year with Matthew. It can be longer. And when I say pull back the curtain, I want to share this part with you specifically. We all know Brent's coming up in a few years and retiring. And when he evaluated what does the body at EFBC, right, Grace Crossing, what do they need? They need the whole counsel of God. And the best way that could be communicated, he believed, was through the book of Romans. And he knows he's going to, probably the last big book, if full book, he's going to be able to complete. Probably a series or some other little stuff after that. But this is the last big one. But if the Lord says, okay, I'm going to transition you to do something different. So when I say I pull back the curtain, that's crucial because we know our God leads his people. He leads you. He leads us in the gifting and responsibilities he gives us. That's why we're in Romans. Because of the need for the gospel, for you and for the world around us. The call to understand God, who he is, what he's like, what he's done, and then what he calls us to. All those things are clearly delineated in Romans. That's why we're there. So we're going to continue there. Unless Jesus comes back and we all get to go home and, yeah, then then <laughs> be a lot like that. Get flying lessons. Be pretty awesome. So if we look at uh, slides here, um, there's one in particular that uh, Brent put up. 
early on when we began this series, and it's a breakdown essentially of the book and where it's going to go. And very obviously, we're in the first section still, the need for the gospel. And you may need it. You may need to be reminded what it is. You know others need it. Can you clearly communicate what the good news is? When was the last time you communicated the best thing you've ever heard that changed your life and changed the trajectory of where you go, not just in eternity, but in life right now? We need it. As we look at four verses today, Romans, we start chapter 2. The first four verses. I'm going to ask you to stick with me. Because we know in the beginning of Romans, it is, it's been just very clear. <laughs> Paul's speaking about the culture he lived in, which is not dissimilar from the culture we're living in. And at the same time, he wants to get us somewhere. He wants us to understand something very clearly. And so if, if you check out with me, on just verse 1, 2, or 3, you're going to miss what Paul's taking. You're going to be, frankly, like Jonah, right? <laughs> Who is trying to get him to go somewhere and deliver a crucial message, but he's like, heck no, I'm going that way. And he bailed. Yes, yeah, you, you can't escape. I'm going to get you where I need you to be, and you're actually going to do something pretty extraordinary. Stick with me. Because... The Lord wants to orient or reorient our thinking, renew our mind, and sometimes that takes a wallop to the heart. What is the wrath of God like? A few weeks ago, Brent unpackaged for us very clearly when we read in Romans the orge aspect of God's wrath. It isn't this uncontrolled, unbridled, venomous blowing in this context, right? It is a very clear, controlled, but rightly placed anger at what has happened. I was thinking about how to describe that, and, and uh, so I was looking up dams, right? And... and I know Bonneville isn't the biggest dam in the country we got. I was looking up, man, we got some of the biggest dams in the world here, right? Pretty extraordinary. Um, and I'm not talking about Faraday, <laughs> right? But even Bonneville isn't technically that big, but it's massive. And it holds back millions of gallons, right? Square acres of water. But over that spillway, it allows a controlled amount to be released at the right time. In fact, five Olympic-sized swimming pools worth every second over that spillway. But it's controlled. It has a purpose. And some, someday, it will be completely and rightly released. And so the wrath of God and that wrath, right, rightly understood, leads to destruction. 
for the second death, eternal separation, torment in that time because he is right in what he does, perfect in how he does it, and he doesn't leave those who've rebelled and refused to turn to him unpunished. So in Romans, we see in the beginning of chapter 2 that uh, there's a you therefore. And that's because that therefore is looking back to the previous section of verses, right, or chapter. And it ends off with all these who have rebelled against God, who don't acknowledge God, who, who despise what he's done, right? Push on for other purposes and culture, engage in things that he says should not be engaged in, worship things that should not be worshiped. He says, I've given them clear, clear presentation of who I am. And because of that, they're without excuse. They're without excuse. So as we dive into Romans chapter 2, I want to ask you to pray with me that we, with the right heart, would look at God's word and allow it to examine us. Not just us examining ourselves, but let the word examine us and test it so that our heart's constantly in the right place, right? I know that you are a new creation if you believe in Jesus But there is always a grappling with, right, trying to see the old nature reassert itself, the habits. Let's pray. Lord, we want to ask, I want to ask right now for myself, for your people who are here, that you would speak through your word, that you would use the truths of what you communicated to Paul so long ago, that are still effective because the same spirit that led him and dwells us, leads us, convicts us, is a guarantee for us. So it help us understand your word rightly so that as we continue to move ahead, we are the most joyful glorifying to you, gift-using people that could possibly be. And I ask that, Lord, in a complete, simple, childlike understanding that you can do extraordinary things with the people in this room and you do extraordinary things. I ask, Lord, for a, a biased huge working among your people here that more in this community in the surrounding area would come and find life and peace and hope in you because of what you have done in your people we love you and ask this all in jesus name amen let me read these four verses you can follow along romans chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 you, therefore, have no excuse, 
you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based, in, based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? Not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. So that statement, you therefore. We recognize when Paul wrote this, there, were, there was a very clear audience, right? It, it was the Roman church. The church gathered in Rome. And Paul's writing this letter. It's being read. And people are like, yeah, that's what's happening in our culture. That's what's going on around us. There's depravity. There's homosexuality. There's, there's worshiping of, of idols and beasts and creatures rather than the creator. There's all this stuff happening. And Paul's laying it out. Yeah. Tell them what's coming. But Paul then turns his attention to those in the church. You, therefore, have no excuse. He ended what we would call chapter one, the section of the letter just before this, saying, they have no excuse. Right? To read back in Romans, the previous verses, chapter one, verse 28 to 32. Let me read them. Furthermore, just as they did not think it, uh, it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to the depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips and slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do those very things, but also approve of those who practice them. They have no excuse. We get to this next section verses. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself because... You who pass judgment do the same things. There is rightly placed, and all of us have heard it, if we walk with Jesus for any period of time, that oh, the church is full of a bunch of hypocrites. Right? All you people, you, you say one thing and then you do the same thing yourself. I do. I have. Rightly look at yourself. 
And that's not how it ought to be. We need to take a moment to examine ourselves. Nobody, nobody likes to be called or thought of as a hypocrite. And Paul is clearly speaking to some in the church, not all. Probably those who are just, yeah, give it to them. Let me contemporize that for you. Oh, yeah, those, those liberal, like, Antifa, Lord's going to just burn them up. Those progressives, oh, those MAGA, oh, those guys, they're just, man. But that's not what we're called to preach first. Christ. He calls us to live in a way that glorifies Him. There will be a, a, a tendency, right, for us to not examine ourselves, to squelch the Spirit, thinking, well, this part's not about me. I would hope and expect that it's not. But when I read this list that it was before the 21 things that Paul references, I go, man, I know sometimes I don't have the love I, have, I should have for others. I certainly didn't show the mercy when I should be given mercy. You know what? I was... Uh, that was pretty insolent. That was pretty rude to that guy. Yeah, I, I, I bet I've come across as arrogant, but I sure didn't put myself in the right light in that situation. I definitely tried to make myself look better. We need to take a hard look at these verses and be willing to allow ourselves to be examined. Because, yeah, you, I get it. You're not Stalin in the 30s, 40s, 50s, who, who led, what, 40 million of his own people to death through starvation, work camps, executions, about 10 million of them were Ukrainians. Yeah, you're not Mao. Leading 40 to 70 million to that exact same end because of the Red Army's need to move ahead in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Yeah, you're not Popot. Got it. I understand. You didn't lead 2 million people who were wearing glasses or had some form of education, hunted them down or wiped them out. I get it. You didn't play, take place in the Rwandan genocide 
30 years ago and cut off another tribe's people at the knees because they were too tall and you wanted them to look up at you. I get it. That's not you. Right? You, you didn't take part or go move to Darfur, South Sudan 20 years or so ago. And pick people off from helicopters or remove parts of their body so they can't nurse their own children. You didn't do that. I get it. You may or may not, over the last 50 years, agree. Maybe you did participate in the death of 65 million children who've been aborted. There are things we need to acknowledge as evil. Pure evil. Horrendous, atrocious things. Things that, sure, were in that list in the previous chapter. We need to acknowledge there is evil. We read a quote to you that says, What we need today is not salvation from our inner corruption, but education because there is inner goodness. Do you believe that? Do you think that? I hope you don't. Because all those leaders, many of us are highly educated, tremendously intelligent. I've spent time with many of you. I know that you have good minds. But those leaders who did those atrocious things also were highly educated with great minds. In our culture, it is those who are often the highest educated who do some most atrocious things. Why? Because of what the end of the last chapter leads us to. They neither worship God or glorified him. They exchange the truth for a lie. And their hearts were darkened. crucial that we understand what he says in the next verses and that God's judgment is based on truth. He is not unjust. He does not lie. And he does not change. Numbers chapter 23, if you want to look it up, says it very clearly. And he needs nothing that you could offer him. You can't bribe him. You can't promise him, well, I'll change my ways if you. God's judgment is right. Why? Because he looks at your heart and my heart. He looks at those who don't know him and those that do. He says, where is your heart? For those that don't believe, 
He has a, a purpose for, to see them come to know him. For those that do believe, those of you who are here, that we follow him, that we don't allow the corruption of the world to ink its way, inkle like an octopus to start to work its way back in and compromise. And so because of that, his judgment is right. His evaluation of us, even as believers, if we're living a duplicious lifestyle in particular, is right. We need to understand rightly who we are. So in verse 3, when Paul writes, so you, a mere human being, level of power, pretty small. Right? Now granted, there's bigger people in the world, taller people in the world. They may have a little more power. But compared to the Lord, do you think rightly about yourself? Honestly, sit for a minute. Do you think rightly about yourself? Do you evaluate yourself on a decent basis, regular basis? You wait till someone at church chooses to irritate you and then never tell them about it? Or, or the guy who's up sharing God's word says, oh yeah, that, that, that could be true, but then psh, you forget about the time we walk out the doors and it doesn't cross your mind again until you're back here. Have you rightly examined yourself recently? Because even those of us who are saved, we live by grace. It is the best thing. There is a transforming work that's taken place, and we cannot diminish that. And so because it's so precious, we cannot allow this precious thing that he has transformed and conformed into the image and likeness of his son to be tarnished with a compromised evaluation of self or denying blatantly when we choose to engage in things or activities that we should have no business Letting our eyes see or our hands go or our feet take us. If we do, the Lord should be angry with us. Now I understand regenerate people admitting, I still mess up, take some serious humility. You want a good measurement? Confess something to your spouse, right? The person who you committed to spend the rest of your life with, right? 
that most likely you don't want to pray with. Why? Because it's uncomfortable. Why? Because they're going to hear the thoughts of your heart. They're going to hear what you talk to the Lord about. Unless you get all superficial and pretend like it's dinner time again. I'm telling you, it's not easy to pray with your spouse. You think I like doing it? It's hard. It doesn't happen enough. So there's a, a measurement there. It's costly. If you want to own the fact that even as a regenerate believer, we still have to be persevering. We recognize it's costly. But he's changed you. He's enabled you. He's empowered you. So, what does this passage lead us to? It leads us to understand that we have a need to have a right thinking of ourselves and a correct thinking about God. That we're mere humans. And he judges rightly and truthfully. And we need to respond in a way that demonstrates, yeah, I actually do believe this. When you share the good news with someone, it is the best thing that they will ever hear. Why? Because of what it says in verse 4. What is it that God shows you? Get the next slide up there real quick. Thank you. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness? What does that mean? God is rich in his kindness to those who believe. Rich. Let that sink in. He's not cheap. He's not stingy in his kindness to you. He isn't squeezing off the kindness hose. It's like a fire hose Blasting in on you. It's lavish. It's generous. For how long? As long as you live. Because it says here, his forbearance and patience. Forbearance and patience. Time. Some of us sitting here, are being held by our parents. They're not getting this yet. Some of us have no hair, gray hair, or someday we will. You've experienced a good amount of time. You've experienced patience and forbearance. 
He has walked with you. He has given you time, opportunity, moments, breaths. Why? Because he is kind. What is God like? He's all-knowing. He's present everywhere. We have all these omnis. We have the other attributes. He's faithful. He's just. He's wrathful. Look at what he wants you to understand about himself. You may get those things or recognize those things, but every moment you have lived, every breath you have taken, every person you've encountered, everything you have done is because he's patient and forbearing. He is kind. He is so kind to you that when you choose to do what you know you shouldn't, he still, they will grow. They're being transformed. I don't want them to do this again. I'm going to convict them through my spirit next time they even think about it or next time they try and go there or next time they try and say something. And I hope, anticipate, and he knows. If you're sitting there saying, I know I'm not perfect, but who is? Psalm, you're laying it on pretty thick. God wants you to understand the length to which he's gone to endure. For you, even to persuade you. Acknowledging your personal deficiency without responding to God's kindness to Him, that's contemptible. When was the last time you were so kind? someone and they just disregarded it. You knew how much energy and thought and purpose you put it into something that probably took you hours or maybe days or weeks. Not a lifetime. And it was unvalued. This cannot easily be smoothed over. I know your tendency because I know mine. I would rather omit knowing I'm forgiven, but I still want to be seen well. So sometimes maybe I leave out or censor things so you don't know about the shameful things I've done or I've thought 
Have you ever tried to cover up so others wouldn't know? We need God's forgiveness. No excuses. When you read in Samuel about the first king of Israel, Saul, you read about a man who is tall, right? Good looking. God chooses him through Samuel to be the first king. And when he does something wrong, he's told to wipe everything out. He leaves some good stuff left alive, some sheep. Samuel comes, what's that bleeding of sheep that I hear? Oh, I was going to sacrifice those to the Lord. The Lord said, kill everything. Another occasion, he is told to wait till Samuel comes to make a sacrifice. But he gets antsy, anxious, impatient, makes a sacrifice himself. Samuel shows up. What did you do? And on those two occasions and on others, Saul reverts. He makes excuses and excuses and justification over and over and over again. And all the circumstances that he gets confronted with. Now, on the other hand, you have the second king of Israel, David, who is by no means the most upright guy. Right? We all know well our Bibles what he did to Uriah when he lusted over his wife, took her, slept with her, got her pregnant, then had Uriah murdered so he could have his wife and not be found out. And when the Lord sends the prophet Nathan to convict him and tells him a story of a little lamb and a man who has it, and how precious it was, and a rich neighbor who had many sheep, but has a visitor come and doesn't want to slaughter one of his own, so he goes and he steals that man's one little ewe and serves it to his guest. And and David, in a righteous anger, goes and says that man should be put to death Nathan says, you're that man. What does David do? This is why the Lord gives us wonderful examples. We can make excuses. Like Romans chapter 1 says, they are without excuse. It says in the beginning of chapter 2, we, if we live in a way that is hypocritical, or without excuse, if we do the same things. Or, like a man after God's own heart, David, 
immediately repents, acknowledges what he has done, and begs for forgiveness from the Lord. He owns it. Doesn't try and make it look good or pretty. Doesn't try and sanitize it or omit things. I did this. Of all God's attributes here, he could speak of any. But he chooses to show that you receive or can receive patience and forbearance because he's kind. He doesn't say, I'm kind and I'm just. And the first time, which you'll be completely justified of you or me, willfully rebelling, done. I'm sending you where you belong. But he is what? What does he want you to know that he's like? What do you tell others that he's like? What do you tell yourself? What do you remember that he is like? A.W. Tozer, in his short little book, Knowledge of the Holy, begins by saying this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let me read that again, just that first part. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you us. Let me continue. And the most portentous or predictive fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. What is the God of the Bible like? He's patient. He's forbearing. He desires that none would perish. And he has elected you. Be careful not to show contempt. When you share the good news with someone else, remember the rest of the end of verse 4. He's forbearing and patient. He wants you to understand his kindness. Why? Not realizing Do you not realize? Here's the question. It's leaving section ending in the question. Not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Now we're talking a salvific aspect here, right? But absolutely for believers as well. We still need to confess, repent, right? Follow hard after him. But he is leading leading the word in Greek is agai it is a motivating force for someone's actions 
He is motivating you and I to continually walk in repentance, but especially for those who don't know him yet. I want you to know, he wants you to know he's kind and is leading you to repentance. But you got to own it. When you share the good news, when you believed the good news, you owned it, right? I know, I know, I am deceitfully wicked. I know me. I know I needed the saving work of Jesus Christ. I know that. You know that. When you share the good news, that needs to be communicated because someone needs to understand, I have to acknowledge my sin and my need. Confess that and ask him to forgive, knowing that he's leading you to do that anyway. And because he's kind, he's wanting you to get there so that when you do, he can just lavish on you the fact you did it. You understand who you are and you understand who I am. Maybe not fully, right? Now, let me enable you with my word, with my people, by my spirit, all these things and more that you will need to rightly enjoy to a greater degree than you've ever known my kindness, my grace, my mercy, my adopting you as my child. You do that. Acknowledge your sin. Repent and ask him to forgive you. And he will. The way to righteousness is not doing good things in our community. It's not helping others. It's not joining the church. It's not getting baptized. It's not meeting regular with the right counselor or working, your, working on things yourself. You need a heart change. No excuses like Saul and owning it and repenting like David. God wants that for you. He does more than anyone else. He's wanted it for a long time and anticipated it. So much so that he prophesied about it through Ezekiel. Chapter 36, verse 25 to 27 says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. His kindness, forbearance, and patience leads us 
to repent. It leads us. Because why? He said he wants that in us so that we, hundreds of years before with Ezekiel, say, so you will have the right heart and you will want to follow my decrees and laws. You want to. Yesterday, well, a few days ago, my wife showed me this cute little video of this dog, right, because all dog ones are cute, cat ones, not so much, but dog, and uh, the owner opens a sliding back door, and the dog runs out because it's hailing, and the dog's trying to catch all this hail in its mouth like it's fetching an endless game of fetch or something. I don't know. But it's pretty, pretty funny, pretty cute. Yesterday, it was hailing, and uh, a couple months ago, we got a puppy. Yay. And it starts to hail yesterday. So I go and I open the sliding glass door and my dog doesn't run out, kind of just <laughs> checking things out and goes out a little bit, gets pelted a couple of times and backs up a little bit. I'm like, ah, fine, I'll come out. So I come out and I'm getting pelted all over the place. And the dog comes out and he starts running around. I'm not paying attention to him because my thoughts turned. My thoughts turned to what we're talking about today. And in that moment, I stuck out my hand and I thought about the kindness of God. And as I stuck my hands out, I just wondered, I wonder how many times if God's kindness is like hail, I could actually feel it. I wonder if I could count some of these. I started to and I realized I can't count all this. And so then I said, I'll just pay attention to my right hand. I started counting, started counting. I got to 13. I lost count. Because I wanted to be honest. I'm like, okay, I can do better than that. 27 times I got next time. And I got to 27, and something ridiculous happened. It really started to hail. See, I thought maybe I could count God's kindnesses. But even when it was lightly hailing and I could count to 27, when I recognize the true amount of kindness that God lavishes on us, on me, it was ridiculous. So much so that when I finally just put my hands down and actually stopped and paid attention and looked around, the ground was white with hail. But I hadn't even noticed because I was so busy trying to count my right hand and frustrated, honestly frustrated a little bit that I lost count at 27. And then it began to just dump. Is that not what our God's kindness to us is like? So let me use hail a little bit different. Hail to the king who leads us to repentance. Hail to the son 
who did the work on the cross and still intercedes at the right hand of the Father. Hail to the Holy Spirit, the seal and guarantee of our salvation, the one who leads us to follow our King. If you have not believed in Jesus for your salvation, what I mean, your everlasting place, when you die, you will either know what it means to be absent from here and present with the Lord or absent from here and sent to a place of torment because he is just. He is kind, but he's just. And he's told us clearly what that decision leads to. I do not want you, and far more does anyone here, and even far more than that does he ever want you to be in hell and eventually the lake of fire. He does not want that. He wants you to know the riches of his lavish kindness, not just in this life, but far more even in the life to come. But there's only one way for that to be. You have to own and confess your sin and ask him to forgive you of it. And he's faithful and he will. If you want to talk about that more, if you haven't done that or if you have questions, I'll be available. Pastor Scott's up here. He's available, right? You can come grab one of the guys on the worship team, right? Sherry, she's here. She would love to talk with you. Lots of folks, whoever you came with, maybe. It is the greatest decision you will ever make. Accept his kindness. Let me pray for us, and we'll continue to worship the Lord after. After. We haven't got there yet. The other kindness. You see, his kindness doesn't end with saying, okay, I'm going to save you. I want you to remember what I do on a regular basis. And so he, on the night he was betrayed, you can read about it in Matthew chapter 26, met with his disciples, and he had a meal with them. And then he broke some bread, and he said, this is my body given for you. Whenever you take this bread together, remember what I've done. After the meal was completely done, he took the drink and he passed it out. And he said, this is my blood of a new covenant. Take, drink it, all of you. He says, and whenever you drink of it, remember what I've done. I will not drink of it again till I'm seeing the fulfillment of all that he promised anew. So he's abstaining. You partake. He's abstaining from that part until we do it with him. So I want to encourage you, if you haven't believed in Jesus for your salvation, you don't need to take the cracker and the juice, right? It, it needs to be understood that sharing in that means you've 
believed in Jesus' kindness to you and repented and believed. If you haven't, don't do it. It's okay not to do it. But if you have believed, when you take and eat and drink, remember what he has done. Remember his kindness. Look at your right hand. And if you, any time in your life, tried to catch some hail, remember all the times that he has dumped on you and thank him. What he saved you from, acknowledge, thank him, and then partake. Here at FBC, we don't pass plates. Um, we let you come up. We play a couple worship songs so you have lots of time to examine, to think about what's happening in your own heart and mind. And then by yourself or with your family or some friends, you can go together, grab your, your cracker and the juice, right, his body and blood, and come back or stay outside, find a quiet place, and remember together, however you want to choose to do that. If you want to sit and just reflect yourself, terrific. There's no one who's going to tell you when to go. It's when you're ready. All right? Let me pray for us. The worship team's going to come back up. And... Lord, thank you. Thank you for what you did do and what you're doing right now. Thank you for lavishing kindness. Thank you for being patient. Lord, all of us are in need. So we give you praise. We hail you. We honor you. Lord, we know that you need to examine us at times. If there's things that we're being hard-hearted about, please soften us. If there's things that we need to just flee from, please strengthen our legs and our hearts and our minds to run and pursue hard after you and leave whatever it is that's encumbering us so that we can walk with contentment and joy knowing that you've finished the work. You've forgiven us and you've adopted us and you've made us new. So I give you praise for the saints who are here. Find praise from our lips, from our minds, from our hearts as we sing and declare what's true of you right now. And we ask in Jesus' name.